Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Good morning, Chris. Good to talk again and welcome to Dublin for a few days. Packed agenda as usual today, so I'll try and skip through it pretty quickly. But we've had US inflation data over the last couple of days. Um, We have lots of stuff going on with global oil prices at the moment on the back of a pretty negative prognosis from the International Energy Agency over the last couple of days, which is warning about supply shortfalls. We've had King Young on visiting Putin. The, there has been a reciprocal invitation and Putin says he's going to visit Kim in North Korea at some stage. So, And we get comments out of that about the possibilities for military cooperation between the two countries. I'd like your perspective on that. Ongoing developments in the UK housing market with the latest survey from the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. There is a story in the Financial Times this morning that certainly caught my attention, I think caught yours as well. The headline was that Rishi Shunak has a plan to stay in power, really. Um, you are in Dublin at the moment, and I know you've been walking around quite a bit, and I'd like to hear your observations as an outsider revisiting the place, what you think is happening here at the moment. And there's also a lot going on in the renewable energy EV space, uh, particularly in relation to China. And Ursula von der Leyen in her State of the Union address this week was basically warning about the Chinese subsidization of EV production and how the the EU is investigating that and may impose sanctions on Chinese EV cars. But there's there's a bigger story there that I think is worth talking about. So, Chris, starting on the US inflation side, um, headline inflation in the States has now increased for the last two months in a row. Um, it went up from 3.2% in July to 3.7% in August. Um, and that's largely 
on the back of higher energy prices. Um, and we, we, we've spoken about that over the last couple of podcasts in the context of Irish inflation, for example. So this downward momentum in headline inflation has certainly been arrested by what's happening on the energy front. However, core inflation, which excludes food and energy and is really the measure that the US Federal Reserve tends to look at a lot more, it has fallen to 4.3% from 4.7%. And less than a year ago, that was running at around 6.6%. So at least from the Federal Reserve's perspective, the coal rate is falling. Um, and I, I guess the interesting thing to watch will be what impact that has on the activities of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, the market has essentially yawned when it comes to these numbers, not because they were uninteresting. The yawn is in terms of the interest rate and bond yield response at all points of the yield curve, there was a bit of, bit of activity around the time of the release, but it went up and it went down. And uh, at the end of the day, it was as if the inflation print from a market perspective uh, hadn't affected anything. Um, but there were interesting uh, bits to that report. And the way in which analysts slice and dice these inflation numbers now is quite incredible compared to when we used to do it for real all those years ago, Jim. There's trimmed means, uh, there's... Uh, indices excluding this including that and all sorts of statistical jiggery pokery done to try and in a way torture the data to, yeah. to say to say something and I'm, I'm not quite sure what it's saying but i do think that there were a couple of slightly disturbing elements to the numbers one is the headline it, you know as you say it's gone up for a couple of months in a row and that's not unconnected to what we're going to talk about which is oil prices and that wasn't a surprise. Everybody can see what the oil prices are doing with a, only a lag of a few hours, really, when you look at the price of petrol on the forecourts. And I've seen it in the UK over the last six weeks or so. You've seen it here in Ireland. Those prices have been going up. One of the interesting things I did see on my walk around Dublin, actually, was that uh, older garages here sell diesel for less than petrol, um, which is a complete flip to how it is in the UK these days. Diesel is much more expensive than petrol. An, inter an interesting minor difference that uh, may, may or may not be interesting to to other people, but the the components of U.S. inflation suggest that the all the good news may be over actually, um, and I don't want to start forecasting. But the the story is very interesting when you break it down between goods and services. Goods inflation is over; that stopped um, a little while ago actually, um, and all of the inflation that they've got is essentially services which means that it may be stickier than goods inflation was. The thing going forward to watch out for is something called the fiscal theory of the price level, Jim. Now, there's a mouthful, isn't it? There is a minority of economists in the United States, led by somebody called John Cochran, who think that an awful lot of what happens to inflation actually stems from the activities of the spending and taxation authorities, the fiscal authorities, rather than the Federal Reserve. Or maybe it's a combination of the two, and we ignore the fiscal side at our peril when we obsess about the Federal Reserve. And the, the U.S. deficit, despite the fact that they've got full employment, the economy is going gangbusters, is still incredibly high. That's got a lot to do with Joe Biden's spending and taxation policies, the lagged effects of Donald Trump's tax cuts, that sort of thing. But there is a big fiscal deficit. And if you thought, as John Cochran does, that there is a connection between today's fiscal deficit and tomorrow's inflation, then you would be worried that this, the, the good news on US inflation and therefore the good news on US interest rates is over. 
And it's interest rates more than anything that affect us here um, because they affect our own interest rates and they affect lots of other things. So I, I think that, yes, the Federal Reserve is on pause. I think that we may well get another upward move towards the back end of this year, depending on the data. And it's been interesting to see that a lot when we were talking about this six, eight, nine months ago, there were lots of interest rate cuts priced in for the end of this year. They've all gone. But there are still interest rate cuts priced in for the back end of next year now. And I have a funny feeling that, that they might be start to price out as well and that we might have to get used on both sides of the Atlantic, but particularly the United States, a higher for longer story. Interest rates plattering roughly around where they are at the moment, but staying there for quite a long time, rather than the cuts perhaps that are currently priced in. So that's my my sixpence worth. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about dissecting the inflation data. Um, it's unbelievable the number of interpretations and um, analysis you can find on an inflation number. And I, I remember commenting, that's a long time ago, actually, that if you exclude everything, you won't have any inflation. Um, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, the headline inflation rate is what drives wage demands and so on. So it's, it, it is the most important number. Um, I'm interested in what you're saying about the fiscal theory of inflation. Um, you know, the, in, in an ideal world, fiscal policy and monetary policy should be working hand in hand. So in other words, if a central bank is increasing interest rates to try and slow down economic activity and bring inflation down, well, then you would hope that fiscal policy is consistent with that. But the problem here, of course, is um, central banks are independent. Uh, governments do what they do for political reasons. So um, I, I think that the fiscal situation nearly always results in central bankers having to do more on the interest rate front than they would like to do. Um, in the context of Ireland, it is a different story in the sense that we don't have an independent central bank setting interest rates here. Uh, we basically, as one of the smaller economies in the euro area, ends up with the interest rate that the European Central Bank sets for the euro area as a whole. So what's happening in the bigger economies like Italy, France, Spain and Germany really dictates what the European Central Bank does. So in, in a sense, Ireland is a price taker on the um, interest rate front. However, and, and of course, that results in situations where Ireland may end up with a totally inappropriate level of interest rates. And certainly in the run up to 2007, 2008, for six or seven years, Ireland lived with an interest rate that was disproportionately low for the Irish economy, given what was happening. And at the same time, government was going gangbusters on the fiscal front, increasing spending, cutting taxes and so on. So and, and here we are today, the European Central Bank is increasing interest rates significantly. And the Irish government is is already in, but is going to embark even further on a significant fiscal expansion here. So there's always this inconsistency between fiscal policy and monetary policy. But I guess in the context of the United States, the question is, does the Federal Reserve believe that inflation at the moment is being caused by excessive economic activity? I think that the US economy is in stark contrast. We've talked about this behaving in stark contrast to the Eurozone economy European economy, including the UK, is slowing down very rapidly in, in cases of the UK and Germany. And obviously that poses a threat to Ireland. You 
you can't have an economy in splendid isolation forever. Um, eventually, it will be affected by these overseas slowdowns. But the good news for Ireland is that the United States, a very important economy for the, for Ireland, obviously, is going gangbusters. Um, I feel that, that that contradiction on both sides of the Atlantic, or that juxtaposition, um, that one economy going gangbusters, one big economy not, I don't know how sustainable that is. Um, something will have to give. It'll probably be an exchange rate at the end of the day. Um, the dollar will start going up again or something like that. Um, interest rates will sort that out. Perhaps interest rates even start coming down in Europe before the United States. But something will happen that is unexpected to break that big gap, I suspect. But at the moment, I think that gap between North America and Europe, economically speaking, is stark enough to keep a very close eye on. Oil prices have just reached a 10-month high. Um, Brent crude is at $92.5 a barrel at the moment. That's up 3.2% year-on-year. It's up 9.7% on the month. And this week, the International Energy Agency has warned that there will be a supply shortfall over the coming months um, because of the OPEC curtailing supply and because of continued strong demand for oil from China, from the United States, and indeed at a global level. Um, And the the prognosis would appear to suggest, and this could be proved wrong by the time this podcast is launched, but the prognosis would appear to suggest that oil prices are just going to continue to edge higher in the current environment. And of course, that feeds into... Um, headline inflation. Um, It also feeds into the cost of living crisis in many countries because we're seeing it here in this country, um, petrol, diesel prices rising. Um, Interesting, you mentioned the fact that petrol is more expensive than diesel on the forecourt in Ireland at the moment. About three months ago for the previous year, it had been the other way around. Uh, Diesel was more expensive than petrol and prior to that for a number of years and it was largely on the back of tax changes that the greens in government implemented in sometime in the 2000s um diesel was significantly cheaper than petrol so it's it, it, it it's got it's going up and down but i think um from an environmental and policy making perspective uh the ideal situation here would be to have diesel more expensive than petrol because diesel is more polluting at the end of the day than petrol. So you would like to see the pricing mechanism in operation there. But anyway, um, the outlook for energy prices as we move into the winter in this part of the world is certainly not terribly compelling at the moment. So it's, it's, it's one to watch and will certainly make the job of central bankers everywhere more challenging over the coming months. Chris, I'd be really interested in your comments on Kim Jong-un taking a normal train to Russia during the week to visit Putin. Um, As I said in my introduction, Kim has issued an invitation to Putin to visit North Korea. Putin said he would. Um, And Kim also said, as did Putin, that they have discussed possibilities for military cooperation. Um, I have to say, I find this really, really sinister stuff. It just shows at one level how desperate Putin must be if he's reaching out to Kim for aid, particularly on the um, military front. Uh, But at a more sinister level, it certainly, you know, just reflects this ongoing polarization of global geopolitics. 
um, you know, when you see Russia, North Korea and China basically lining up on the same side of the fence, um, it does suggest that um, the global geopolitical outlook is just fraught with risk at the moment. Absolutely, Jim. You're you're 100% correct to, to emphasize the sinister aspect of that. There's a headline on, I think it was Bloomberg this morning, saying Putin gathers allies in opposition to the West. And that was an article referring to essentially a, a big anti-Western coalition gradually being built up by Putin. The Korean example that you just mentioned there is the most recent, the most salient. But of course, he's been getting others involved as well. Iran, notably, is now a Soviet. <laughs> that's Gosh, that's a Freudian slip, isn't it? A Russian ally. Where it goes next remains to be seen. The, the biggie, of course, is China. I don't think Kim wouldn't have gone to Russia if China hadn't said it was okay to do this. Kim wouldn't be... We, we don't know yet how much artillery he's... Shells, he's, how many artillery shells he's going to supply to Putin. But he wouldn't be doing this without Chinese say-so. So China in the background, well, in fact, in the foreground of all of this, is very, very important. The train thing is, if it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. Kim's grandfather was gifted a train by Stalin. And not to be outdone, Chairman Mao gifted a train to Kim's grandfather as well. And both his grandfather and his father used these and subsequent vintages of trains to travel around because they were both absolutely terrified of flying for all sorts of reasons. They they believed they were more vulnerable in an aeroplane to attack from a missile attack than they were on a train, which is a slightly odd belief, particularly these days. But it seems that Kim Jong-un has inherited his father's distrust of flying. His father actually died on a train. He actually died on his train. So they really are very attached to their trains. And of course, they take an awful lot longer than two aeroplanes. And the final interesting fact about Kim's train. It's so heavily armoured, it can only travel at a maximum of 27 miles an hour. So it's, you know, it's a real three-day camel ride to get to wherever he wants to go to. So I'm chuckling, I suppose, in, in, in hysteria rather than in amusement, because it, it, it is very, very serious. The, the point of, of his visit, of course, is that Putin wants his stock of artillery shells, 150 and 120 millimeter shells, which he's had stockpiled forever because technically he's still at war with South Korea. That war from the 1950s never officially ended. And so they have these vast stockpiles, aging stockpiles of artillery shells that apparently fit Russia's guns. And that's what Putin wants. In return, he's said to be giving North Korea food aid. Russia has lots of grains, we know that, and and other foodstuffs, but also tech support in terms of submarine warfare, and Kim has an ailing satellite program, which of course Russia is very good at satellites. They met at a Cosmonauts aerodrome-type spaceport place. That was deemed to be significant. One of the many ironies about this exchange of essentially arms for food is that Russia is a signatory to United Nations resolutions for sanctions against North Korea. So the moment Russia starts trading with North Korea on this kind of basis, then it is in violation of its own sanctions against North Korea. That, of course, is a legal technicality, something that Russia will not care a hoot about, but it, it, is, it is what it is, as they say. So, yeah, it's very serious, Jim. Um, it's not good news for Ukraine. Obviously, this means that Putin's war effort can be sustained for longer than would otherwise be the case. I don't think it's a deal breaker in the sense that it will make a, 
you know, a massive difference to the war. It helps Russia's war effort, but I don't think it does more than that because Russia's industry is now on a 24-7, 365-day year war footing. They're producing plenty of their own munitions now, not just artillery shells, but their cruise missile production, for example, is said now by some analysts to be higher than it was before the war started. So they're not running out of missiles, contrary to some hopes. They appear to be well able to supply themselves. So at the margin, it helps their war effort, this Korean thing. But I think the, the bigger story is, as you say, which is what it means for geopolitics. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Chris Farbeat for me to give a plug for another podcast here, but uh I'll have to, I was listening to The Economist has a podcast called The Intelligence. And last Friday, they conducted an interview with Zelensky, uh, which is kind of fascinating. It was about 30 minutes. Um, really fascinating, I thought. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's basic, what he's calling for really, and what he's worried about clearly is the uh, commitment of the allies of Ukraine to continue to support and, um, you know, he was speculating on what might happen if Trump were to become the next U.S. president. Um, also speculating about the ongoing EU commitment to fund the Ukraine war effort and help out in whatever way possible. And, um, you know, the bottom line is that without this international support, uh, Ukraine is screwed. And I think if Ukraine were to be screwed and if the Russians were to win this war, it just would really, really set up a very dangerous precedent in Europe. So it's 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 scary stuff. It's ongoing. We will talk about it again. Moving back to the UK, Chris, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors has just published its latest survey of the UK housing market. It is at a 14 year low. Are you surprised? No, I'm not, Jim. Obviously, I'm saddened by this because we don't want a collapsing property market. We're not there yet. We're not in a state of collapse. We're in a state of genteel decline, a bit like the British aristocracy. The property market is weak and the official data is starting to back up the anecdotes that several of us have been talking about recently. We've had two but uh, significant building societies who compile house price data recently suggest that house prices are falling at their fastest rate for a good number of years. They're not falling off a cliff. The year-over-year declines are of the order of 4 or 5%. But if that continues, obviously, it's going to be a major problem. Uh, The RICS survey, as we call it, is at a 14-year low. That's a balance between buyers and sellers. And it's an indicator of who has market power. 
that it suggests that the buyer currently has the upper hand big time in UK housing transactions. And that's backed up by dinner party and other anecdotes that you see around the place. You see lots of uh, property page reports in the media talking about how somebody has had to lower their asking price by 10 grand here, 15 grand there. And lots of people chatting about this as well is that the buyer, particularly the cash buyer, to the extent that they exist, is wielding an awful lot of market power in the UK market. Transaction volumes are down. Um, one of the things, of course, about the property market here, it's far less of a factor than it is in the United States. In the US, property market transactions are down a lot. And that's partly because they're like so many other countries. You may be familiar with this concept, Jim. They're not building enough houses in the United States. Um, they're, they're, the structure of their mortgage market is very much that if you sell your house and you've got a 30-year fixed mortgage and you repay it, A, you may have a penalty for repaying your 30-year mortgage after only a couple of years, but then you don't get, you can't take your mortgage with you. You have to renegotiate at the new rate and the new rate may be significantly higher than when you last negotiated your mortgage a couple of years ago. So that's a real deterrent for remortgaging, for moving on, for selling your house. And there's a, a smaller, much smaller effect operating here in, in the UK as well, because anybody thinking of getting a mortgage now is 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 really struggling with with the higher rates that um, we currently have. And a lot of people are sitting on fixed rate mortgages and, and saying, okay, well, I'm going to stick with that. I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to renegotiate anything. That sort of factor is in play. Some mortgages allow you to take them with them. Some don't. And it varies from the, the type of deal that you have. But the overriding story is that the UK housing market, it's emanating out from London and the southeast, radiating into the rest of the country now. This is where it started in the southeast. Um, and it's it's a real problem. It's very, very weak. And the headline in the FT today about Rishi Shunak has a plan to stay in power, really? Uh, That's a quote. I know it is, Jim. And it, it, the, the, the headline is a, a question where you can sort of almost see the, the raised eyebrows or the astonished look on the headline writer's face. And it's a, a long exploration of the plan that Mr. Sunak has to regain power. Uh, one of the many little anecdotes from the article concerned was that the authors asked uh, an opinion poll uh, person, a senior opinion pollster in the UK, for any thoughts that they might have on a 5,000-word article uh, asking the question, can Rishi Sunak win the next general election? And the opinion pollster said, well, I can think of one word, but I can't think of what the other 4,999 would be. It's it's almost a joke now, the idea that Rishi Sunak could win the next general election. Things are so bad for him and therefore the country. Um, I worry that... Uh, Keir Starmer is campaigning uh, to win the next general election on the basis that he's not the Tory party. Uh, I don't think that's a very compelling, for me anyway, as a potential voter in for Keir Starmer, that's not a very compelling proposition. And I'm also conscious that there's, you know, pro at least another year, probably, we don't know, but at least another year before the next general election could happen at the same time that Donald Trump is being re-elected. So, we, you know, uh, uh, the famous cliched saying is a week is a long time in politics. Well, a year is an eternity. So stranger things have happened. Um, it would have to be a very strange thing for Rishi Sunak to be re-elected. But hey, you never know, Jim. November of next year, we might be talking about uh, Trump back in the White House and Sunak back in number 10. And uh, that would certainly give us a lot to talk about, if not a lot, not an awful lot to be cheerful about. Indeed, it would. Um, uh 
as I say, far be it for me to give uh, a plug to another podcast, but another another, I'll do it again. Okay, another podcast that I've been listening to quite a lot, uh, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, The Rest is Politics. And um, it's it's fascinating to hear their discussion on an ongoing basis about UK politics. Um, It is just a given that um, Sunak will lose power in the election and that Kirsch Starmer will be the next prime minister. Um, if I might just plug a podcast as well, if it seems we're on that track today, I listened to one, um, I forget whose podcast it was, but there's a professor at King's College London called Richard Portis, who's a very good economist, was uh, being asked about what advice he'd give to Keir Starmer uh, for the next Labour manifesto for what Labour should do if and when it does gain power. And you'll be interested in this from an Irish perspective, Jim, because we've banged on about this point about the housing crisis being a global international phenomena rather than just something exclusively Irish. And number one on Portis's agenda item for Keir Starmer for doing something really, really important, not just for its own sake, but for the wider needs of the UK economy, he said, solve the housing crisis. Just commit, tie yourself to the mast, was the words he used, to building hundreds of thousands of homes. And uh, one of the ways in which they, he suggested that Starmer should do this is, again, this might sound familiar to you, reform the planning system, which is, uh, uh, you know, again, something we talk about a lot. And they interest, he interestingly pointed out the New Zealand model because New Zealand quite apparently have successfully adapted their planning process. And for a country that has so much free land, not free, but available land, low population density, the idea that New Zealand would have housing problems is is is, is interesting, uh, speaks again to this global point. But they changed planning from being an individual, almost building by building process to being a regional zoned process that, that the planning authorities say, right, this bit of New Zealand, this bit of Christchurch, this bit of whatever is zoned for uh, up to 20 storey buildings or for this or for that. And that the onus on objections is to uh, object to that to any proposal relative to the zoned plan rather than this building by building brick by brick uh, approval process or disapproval process that we have um, here in both Britain and Ireland. In, an interesting idea. But the most important point, of course, was that for, for many people in the UK, it's the same as it is in Ireland. The, the number one priority for the next government must be housing. Yeah, I, I heard um, Alistair Campbell making a similar comment that housing, but also, you know, he stressed the focus on public services. So it's it's very similar to the story here. Um, I was speaking at the Construction Industry Federation's Southern Conference in Cork last week, and I was I wasn't amazed, actually, but it really struck me that everybody speaking at that was talking about the planning system as the biggest impediment to the delivery of housing, more so than capacity constraints, because the view is, listen, if we can build houses, we'll get the skills and the staff somewhere to do it. So the the, the planning thing appears to be um, pretty universal. And uh, it just beggars belief that actually policymakers don't turn around and do something meaningful about it. Politically, I know it's difficult, but it just has to happen. That's the point. It is difficult, Jim. And Mm. confronting vested interests uses up a lot of political capital. And the vested interests involved in objecting, um, you know, the regulatory, legal, 
when you get the lawyers involved, as you do on both sides of the Irish Sea, um, it's incredibly difficult dealing with all of this stuff. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes resources. And when you're doing this, it means you're not doing something else. And so it's always prioritization. Uh, it's it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. Chris, I mentioned in my introduction about renewable energy, Chinese EVs and so on. Um, I think we'll park that because in the interest of time, we just wouldn't be able to give it the coverage it deserves. But in the next podcast, we definitely have to look at what's happening there. But I just want to wrap up by saying um, last night in Lansdowne Rugby Club, and it's a bit unusual for me to end up in a D4 rugby club, but I was chairing a seminar that was held by Waterford Chamber of Commerce for basically Waterford people in Dublin. Uh, the basic aim is to try and focus attention on the investment potential down there and so on. And it was an incredibly upbeat assessment of where Waterford is at the moment. And from a regional perspective, Waterford and the Southeast have certainly lagged over the years. So there's something very real happening. But I'd be interested uh, briefly in your sort of anecdotal um, perception, I guess, of what you've seen in Dublin over the last few days. How are we doing? Well, of course, walking around South Dublin, Dublin 4, a lot. Um, I walked past that rugby club last night or day before yesterday. And uh, I've walked from the centre of town out to Dorky Kalini for all sorts of reasons. I like walking and I had the time for once in between the various things that I've been doing this week. And I know that's a very selected or selective piece of geography of Ireland, and it isn't necessarily typical of all of Ireland, but it is a part of Dublin that I know very well. I lived there for a long time in various bits of South Dublin. And I must say, I haven't done that kind of walking for, for a few years now. I used to do a lot of it, um, and my memories of it are still very strong. And all sorts of things jumped out at me, but number one was just a feeling, and so this isn't a data <laughs> Um, this is this is more uh, just a vibe. Um, the prosperity of the place relative to some of the places I walk around in the UK is striking. Prosperity is oozing out of the walls of the buildings I'm walking past. It's clean, it's tidy, it's very very upbeat compared to a lot of other towns and cities that that I could I could mention. The other thing, slightly less positive, was that uh, well, for the first positive, another positive thing is that it's, it was great to see so much housing or apartment construction going on for me the, the the puzzle the disappointment and it's kind of sort of related to that planning point that we we're making earlier on is how much of the construction i did see was all low rise three-story apartment blocks it's ridiculous you should be building 50-story style upper west side manhattan luxury apartment buildings in 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 d4 quite frankly and um that you're not is is i think a missed a missed opportunity but the final thing, which is a little, uh, shall we say, controversial, that I'd say about walking past Lansdowne Road Rugby Club, just an objection to the apparent fact, as I am led to believe by various protagonists, Lansdowne Rugby Club have bought YMCA Cricket Club's ground from under them and are in the process of, by a variety of means, making sure that this venerable, over-a-century-old cricket club in the heart of Dublin is closing down which is very sad. That's the rumour anyway. I stress it's a rumour, um, but it seems to be well-founded. The future of YMCA Cricket Club, which may not matter to an awful lot of people, but uh, I have fond memories of it for various reasons, so I, I think that's very sad. 
Okay. Listen, Chris, I'll wrap it there because when you start to drag me into the realms of cricket and rugby, you'll struggle. Okay. So listen, great talk. Enjoy the rest of your stay in Dublin. And um, until the next time. Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.